go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director at EAA and one of your hosts across the table. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the Museum Programs Representative. And Chris, today we have on the phone another uh, uh, very interesting, uh, you know, kind of a part of the aviation industry and, and uh, community that we don't necessarily hear from that often, a flight test engineer. You want to introduce him? Absolutely. We're very lucky to have Kenneth Katz with us uh, on today. Um, we've been chatting as we're preparing for this, and I can tell you that we're all cut from the same mold already, and I already feel like we're, we're good friends here. So, uh, Ken, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Um, let, let's get, you know, our favorite question out of the way first. It's one that we ask, I think, everybody. It's, it's, a, it's one that we always love to get the reaction to. Um, how did you first really become interested in aviation? Well, you know, I think I was pretty much sold by the time I was about four years old um, because I, I grew up during the, you know, the heart of the Apollo program. And uh, so I was, I was absolutely enraptured by that. Um, and and really got into everything that a kid could do with regard to um, aviation and, and space. I I followed the space program. I built um, squadrons and squadrons of, of plastic model airplanes. Um, I flew model rockets. Um, I drew pictures of airplanes. Um, I got you know model paint on my parents' furniture. Um, so <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, you know, I was, uh, I, I was totally into that stuff as a kid. Um, my dad was interested in it. I mean, he was a navigator back in the Air Force in the 1950s. But, uh, you know, I, I was totally uh, consumed by that stuff. And, uh, you know, as, as, as school went on, um, and I definitely had a, uh, a knack for science and, and math, um, I ended up uh, getting a uh, bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering. I went through ROTC. Um, I went into the Air Force and I uh, served as a flight test engineer at Edwards Air Force Base. Um, and since then, I've spent much of my career um, in aerospace. Um, in addition to, um, uh, you know, all the other things that go with it, I'm an avid general aviation pilot, an EAA member, an AOPA member. Um, I write books about airplanes. So that's kind of my life. Well, you've already given me so many questions that I, uh, that I want to ask. Uh, Going back to, you said as a kid you were interested in the space program uh, um, and during the Apollo era. Two questions I have for you. Uh, what was your favorite Apollo mission? And do you remember, you know, were you around when you got to watch the moon landing? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I was uh, six years old when uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And so um, that was a, uh, that was really a, 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 an incredible thing. And I still remember it. Um, if I had to say which Apollo mission was my favorite, um, I would say Apollo 9. And people go, huh, what? Well, Apollo 9 was the Earth orbit test of the lunar module and also of the, um, the, the spacesuit and the portable life support system. And um, to, in my mind, it was kind of the ultimate flight test mission because here they were, they had a spacecraft, and they couldn't land the space, the lunar module. They couldn't land that back on Earth. So when they separated the two vehicles, they had to rendezvous and dock again because otherwise the people in the lunar module couldn't come back. So that was just an incredible flight test mission. And uh, I've always been particularly fascinated by Apollo 9. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that had to take... Uh 
uh, I think a bit of bravery to step into a machine that you know you can't bring back to Earth and then go away from the only support system that can bring you back to Earth. That's a, that's a pretty brave step to get back into that machine. So, Yeah, I always yeah. love the scene in the, in the From the Earth to the Moon episode on Apollo 9 where, you know, they're, they're just basically cataloging all of the firsts that are going to have to happen on that mission. <laughs> Not the least of which the first docking of two occupied spacecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. Yes. I mean, they had done rendezvous of two occupied spacecraft previously. Um, I think the Soviets had done it. And then, you know, we did it uh, in Gemini 6 and 7. But this was the first, at least the first American hard docking. I think that the Soyuz did a, a hard docking before we did. Um, but uh, maybe they did. But I don't know the exact timing. But 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 certainly um, it was the first hard docking of two American um, manned spacecraft. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other question I have before we go too far, you mentioned you know you went to work at Edwards, um, and I've I've been to Edwards uh, uh, once, and um, to me and maybe maybe it's just because I'm a geek, but but I'd love to hear your reaction to this. You almost felt you could feel the history in the air out there, like there was some sort of electricity when you got out there that it was just like, wow, so much has happened here that there was just this definite appreciation for. Uh, for where you were. Well, you must have been reading my mind because I, I remember I, you know, reported in, I was 22 years old and, um, you, you know, you drive in and I mean, it's a huge base and, you know, there was this sign that said, welcome to Edwards Air Force Base, home of the Air Force Flight Test Center. And then you drive, drive and drive for like another, you know, 10 or 12 miles or whatever it is till you get to the actual base. And then I was driving, you know, along the flight line and um, the thing that struck me was like, well, I've been reading Aviation Week, you know, for a decade already, and I was only 22 years old, and it's like, it's all here, and it's real. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, okay, so you, so you actually arrived at, at Edwards pretty early in your career, so it sounds like you're kind of destined to that from the beginning of your time in the, uh, in the Air Force. What was the career path that took you to being a flight test engineer? Well, um, you know, I certainly would have liked to have uh, gone to pilot or navigator training in the Air Force, but I had thick glasses, and that wasn't in the card. So the Air Force was going to um, have me be an engineering officer, which, which was fine. But when I was a freshman in, in college, I learned that there was a particular career path in engineering called flight test engineering, where you were part of the flight test team and sometimes might even get an opportunity to fly in some of the aircraft. And I said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And um, I learned more about it. And um, I, when it was time in my senior year in college to put in my wish list, my dream sheet to the Air Force, I said, I want to go to uh, Edwards Air Force Base and I want to be a flight test engineer there. And my assignment came back and they said, you're going to go to Edwards Air Force Base and be a flight test engineer. And it was like, wow. Um, so um, it was just a tremendous opportunity because you know, uh, you're, 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 you're working with the aircraft. Um, you might get an opportunity to actually do some flying in aircraft. And that's a pretty rare thing if you're not a, a pilot or a navigator or a flight engineer or something like that. So um, it combined, you know, the, the flying and uh, the engineering stuff that I also enjoy very much. So, you know, for, especially for those who are maybe newer to, to this area or this field, can you tell us a little bit about what your job functions would be, and what would a normal day look like uh, in your office? Okay, well, let me 
I guess the question, you know, I think everybody understands what a test pilot does. And with EAA, of course, there are an awful lot of test pilots because if you're building a, a kit or a home builder from scratch and you, uh, you go out and you may be the test pilot of your own airplane. But the question is, what's a flight test engineer do? Well, for a think about, think about it, if you're going to be testing, I like to think about it, you divide it up into three pieces. You've got the aircraft part of the um, test program, which is the configuration of the aircraft and its instrumentation. You've got the mission part of flight test, which is planning, airspace and test range, um, data um, acquisition and, and data analysis. And then you've got the actual flight itself, which is the safe and productive control of the aircraft uh, during the, uh, the test flight. Now, for a, a fairly simple test program, like let's say you've built a kit, um, you do all those things yourself. But when you're talking about a, a, a big-time flight test program where you've got um, an awful lot of complexity, um, the pilots obviously focus on the flight part of it, the safe and, and productive control of the aircraft. Um, and, and related to that, they're doing several other things. The test pilots tend to be very involved in simulator work, both uh, for development and for rehearsals. Um, they've got flight proficiency. Oftentimes, test aircraft don't fly that often. So um, in order the pilots to fly some other kind of aircraft for proficiency, that doesn't give them much time to, to actually focus on the aircraft or the mission. Um, so flight test engineers tend to cover those other things. The flight test engineers often, if you will, own the aircraft, make sure that it's configured properly for the test and that the test is appropriate for the configuration. Um, there are engineers who are working instrumentation, and then there are the aircraft engineers who are um, coordinating to make sure that the instrumentation that's installed is appropriate for it. Then you've got the mission, which is what are we going to do on this mission? How does it fit into the big um, uh, picture of the test program? What's the um, hazard analysis and what are we going to do to mitigate that? Uh, we've got to coordinate with the range. We've got to make sure that the right uh, um, range assets, for example, cine theater lights or radars or, or targets are, are up and running. Um, we've got a question of all the data and what are we going to do with it and how's it going to get analyzed? Um, Obviously, when you're test when you're doing a big time test like you are at Edwards or say in the commercial or general aviation world, um, everybody engineers, pilots, mechanics, the 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 discipline experts in aerodynamics and structures and avionics and flight controls and things like that, everybody's working everything. I mean, you're all you're all working as part of a team, but there are some kind of specialties. And so flight test engineers are focusing on the aircraft side of it, that's the configuration instrumentation, and the mission side of it, the planning and and data side of it. So let, let me ask you this. I, and I think a lot of times when we hear tests flying out at, uh, at Edwards, we think of like super crazy X-planes, obviously, is what we think about. But was it a mix of new aircraft designs as well as maybe a, a, what I would call a proven airframe, but you were testing, you know, new avionics or maybe like a weapon system or navigation? Was it kind of a mix or was there one area that oh, you were? Oh, oh yeah. And there's much more of the latter than of the former. I mean, there, you know, in the 1950s, um, you would be getting a couple of new kinds of aircraft every year. But um, this is not, you know, even in, when I was there in the 1980s, um, you know, it wasn't like there were new aircraft popping out every year. So what you had was a constant stream of enhancements. And for example, 
um, a new kind of missile would come out and you would need to integrate that with the aircraft or there'd be a new load of avionics software, a new, uh, you know, a new uh, uh, delivery of avionics software uh, or flight control software that needed to be tested out or a new tweak on an engine, a new dash number on an engine. So, you know, people have this view of, of flight testing where it's, you know, all this dramatic stuff, but a lot of flight testing is, is, does not is not particularly exciting stuff. You know, it's 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 droning along at a specific altitude and airspeed in order to test a radar while while you have another airplane acting as a target coming in the opposite direction or something like that. Um, it's got to it's not trivial at all because because everything has to be done in a very precise way and there's a question about collect making sure you're collecting the right data, but it's not you know um, hair on fire kind of stuff. Well, I mean, uh, as somebody who's worked on the flight test program that we put out to our EAA members, uh, we we try to make it as as uh, as boring as possible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't like it when flight testing is exciting. So, <laughs> um, but no, that 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 makes a lot of sense. You know, um, anytime you change something on any aircraft, um, even again, there's parallels to the amateur built world. You know, you put a new propeller on a uh, on an amateur built aircraft, you're required to report that to the FISDO and you'll get a, a, a flight test period. When we put skis on our uh, Zenith 750, we not only had to test the, obviously, if they worked on snow, but also what does that do to the flight characteristics of the aircraft? And we did a little flight program on that, um, even though the aircraft was already up. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, for example, I mean, I'll tell you the very specific test that I worked on. The first test was called... Um, it had the long name of B-52 Offensive Avionics System Block 2 CSRL. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What the B-52, remember, had already was already by the 1980s, you know, it was a 20-plus-year-old airplane. Um, we had decided that we were going to modernize those airplanes by putting cruise missiles on them. In order to operate cruise missiles from them, they had to get a digital avionics system so that you could align and target the cruise missiles. That was called offensive avionics system. So what they did was they ripped out all the old um, analog stuff and they put in what at the time was a really state-of-the-art digital system. It was actually a system that was derived from the system on the B-1 bomber. And um, that went into service uh, in uh, 1982 with the cruise missiles. Um, then they decided that they were going to um, enhance that, which hence the OAS Block 2. And there were two major features of the Block 2 system. Um, this was really a software upgrade, not a hardware upgrade. The first was that it was going to be compatible with the new advanced cruise missile, which was the stealth cruise missile. And the second part of it was that it was going to be compatible with the what was called the CSRL or Common Strategic Rotary Launcher. Um, when the B-52 initially got cruise missiles, they carried pylons that had six under each wing. By the way, uh, a pylon with six uh, cruise missiles was heavier than an F-16, um, just to give you an idea. Um, but So they could carry 12, but, but what CSRL was was a rotary launcher in the bomb bay, so you could carry eight more. So now you could carry a total of 20 missiles. Um, so, so we were testing um, the compatibility with the advanced cruise missile and also with the um, common strategic rotary launcher, the CSRL. But um, as is the nature with software, when you change things, you can um, um, damage existing functionality. So basically, the entire functionality of OAS needed to be re-verified with the new um, 
uh, with the new software, the Block 2 software. The other thing that I worked on was called Tacit Rainbow, which was the code name for an experimental um, conventional cruise missile that uh, had a radar hunting nose in it. And um, it was uh, meant to be carried by both the B-52 and tactical aircraft. It was uh, launched off them and it went out uh, autonomously looking for radars to attack. And um, I worked on that. I spent most of my time at Edwards working on that. Now, for a variety of reasons, that never went into production. Um, but uh, that's what we did. Uh, it was very interesting stuff, but uh, particularly, you know, the live fires of the missiles. Um, but it wasn't, you know, screaming around at uh, high mock and high G and, and all these sorts of things. I mean, the, the flying um, was actually, you know, fairly mundane. Interesting, but um, not not you know uh the stuff that you'd make movies out of i know a uh, a missile that would go actually go out and just seek out stuff to attack sounds pretty awesome so <laughs> yeah it was it was it was pretty awesome um it was it was autonomous it wasn't that it was being controlled so you know after you um sent it out um it 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 took over now of course for testing we had the ability to um uh, take control of it but that was not a you know that was not something that would have gone into the actual operational missile and we needed to use that because um, what we would do is the missile would be programmed to look for um, radar emitters of certain characteristics. And, and um, you know, that was primary, you know, you would program it to whatever enemy radars you wanted to go after. And there was one mission where we launched the missile and it, you know, started to circle around looking for targets. And then it headed off in a direction off the range that we definitely didn't want it to go. So we took manual control and steered it back around. And then it started to sniff around looking for radars and it said, oh, I found something. And it again went off the range. And um, we, uh, you know, it did this uh, like two or three times. And uh, after the mission, um, we analyzed what happened. And what we did was we took the location of the missile and then we took the seeker angles, you know, where it was uh, looking at when it did this. And they all converged on a point. And what we found interestingly was that there was an emitter out there. Um, which had almost the same characteristics as a certain Soviet radar, but it was most certainly not a Soviet radar. And uh, so the missile actually was working fine. It was We had told it to look for something, and it found it. It just wasn't the target on the range. So what you're saying is you almost blew up News Channel 6's advanced Doppler uh, storm tracker? <laughs> something like that, only we didn't blow it up because we didn't have a live warhead, and we were certainly going to take it over before it did anything. But yeah, basically, that, that's that's what, we, what happened. For days, nobody knew what the weather forecast would be like in the area. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, let me ask you, do you know much about the airframes? Like, for example, the B-52, when you're testing this, is it a... Do you guys get like an off-the-line B-52 or is there an airframe that's just kind of designated for you guys to use as a test uh, rig or how does that work? Well, that's an interesting question. It, uh, the answer is a combination of both. Um, for example, there's a B-52 that's been at Edwards Air Force Base since 1985. It arrived just before I did, which is tail number 60-0050. That's a B-52H and that's become kind of a dedicated test aircraft because, you know, the you instrument it and you configure it for tests. However, there also are a, a rotating cast of other airplanes that can be brought in. It depends. Um, 
you know, an operational airplane will be more operationally representative. And for if you, if, first of all, if you can get it from the operational force, if you can pry it out of their uh, hands, which is uh, handled at, you know, higher echelons, those decisions. But a more operationally configured airplane may be important for certain kinds of tests. On the other hand, if you want to really heavily um, instrument something, that's a, that's a big deal. And um, to heavily instrument a airplane w- would be tantamount to kind of disassembling it and putting it back together. And, and then after you're done, you have an airplane that really isn't operationally representative anymore. So um, you'll end up having a combination of the two. It depends on the test that you want to do. Um, whether you want to um, use an, a more operational airplane and perhaps put some instrumentation on it, or whether you want to use a more dedicated test airplane, which is typically... Um, uh, which is typically more heavily instrumented, but less operationally representative. For example, on the test aircraft that we were using, the they didn't have the tail guns um, uh, because we weren't going to be shot at flying over California, and they didn't have the 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 uh, defensive electronic countermeasures. Was all um, um, it wasn't removed, but it was uh, you know uh, deactivated because we didn't need that stuff. Um, if you wanted to, on the other hand, look at, let's say, the interference between the electronic countermeasures and some of the uh, new aircraft system, then you might want to bring in an operational airplane to do that. That makes sense. And I guess that leads to another question that, that I was having, which is, you know, how would you study up on a particular airframe before you, you, uh, you did a particular uh, test program? I, I assume that there was, a, there was a, a decent period you had to take to do that. And, and I guess kind of a corollary to that is I know that a big part of the curriculum for test pilots is to become familiar with a very wide breadth of aircraft as kind of a way to develop the, uh, the techniques you need to be able to... Um, you know, I guess successfully fly fly anything and kind of find the commonalities between, you know, different parts of your flying experience. Is there something similar when you're learning now to be a flight test engineer? Yeah. Um, well, there's a couple different things. Um, I'll, I'll answer that in a couple different ways. First of all, when you have a new program, you want to get the test team formed. You don't want to have the, you know, the new test aircraft or test missile or something show up and, oh, then we'll form up a team. You want to get the team started much earlier so that those people can do things like attend the design reviews of the contractor. And and by attending design reviews, um, you're, you're already starting to learn about uh, what is this thing that you're going to be testing. So that's very valuable to be able to do that. Um, it's certainly true that um, diversity of experience is very important. And um, the test pilot schools, as they're called, also have um, flight test engineers who attend them. I never, I did not get to attend the Air Force Test Pilot School or the Navy Test Pilot School. Um, how, um, but there are certainly about um, a third of each class at 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 test pilot, at the military test pilot school is actually flight test engineers, um, typically a little bit um, more experienced and older, um, and that's that's a phenomenal opportunity. Um, but even those of us who didn't get that opportunity. Um, our test force happened to be located right next to test pilot school, and test pilot school would bring in different airplanes for their students to uh, fly. And um, I had a reputation well-earned as an ace sniveler. Um, I could, I, when a new airplane came in, I would immediately start calculating how I was going to get a, a flight net. And <laughs> what's amazing is that in four years in the Air Force as a non-rated guy, in other words, I wasn't a pilot or a navigator, I got more 
kinds of military aircraft in my logbook than most career military pilots do. I think I got about 20 different types of aircraft that I got to fly, um, which was really, really cool. And it was a great education because when I went to my, when I, I, I I left active duty after four years and I went to work for the Boeing company and I flight tested the V-22 Osprey. And, you know, the V-22 is a pretty newfangled kind of airplane, or at least it was back uh, in the late 80s. And, um, you know, it really helps to have a, a broad range of experiences that you can bring to something that's new and, and somewhat unprecedented. There had been tilt rotors before, but the V-22 was kind of in a class by itself. And the fact that I had experience in about 20 different kinds of aircraft before I got associated with the V-22 was extremely helpful. You know, you start to see what's common about aircraft, what's different about aircraft, why are they uh, designed the way that they are, and what, how do their design and their characteristics tie into each other. So let me ask you, out of uh, all those aircraft that you flew in or, or worked around, uh, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I actually do have a couple of favorites. Um, I... One of the most interesting aircraft that I got to fly was a variable stability Learjet that was operated by the Calspan Corporation. And, and this was an airplane where you could um, configure parameters on it um, to make it fly as a wide variety of things and see the effect of, for example, different control force variant, uh, gradients. Um, and uh, that was a fascinating flight. The thing I got out of the, my, my flight in that airplane was that the the force that the um, that the pilot has to overcome in the controls has as much effect on the flying qualities of the airplane as um, um, the actual characteristics of the airframe itself. In other words, if the force gradient is is too high or too low, um, that really affects how precisely you can fly the airplane. Um, so that was a fascinating one. Um, I got to fly in a couple of Navy airplanes with some interesting avionics on them. I got to fly in a Navy P-3C Orion, um, and we went out over the Pacific Ocean and dropped sauna buoys and listened to things and used the radars and the infrared and everything. That was super cool. Um, the uh, I got to also fly in a Navy E-2C Hawkeye and um, use its uh, radar and uh, passive uh, um, electronic intelligence systems, which was uh, super, super cool. And, um, and then, of course, uh, most of my flight time was in the B-52, which is um, an exceptionally cool airplane. And as well as op- my primary duty was to operate instrumentation, but um, on proficiency missions, um, uh, sometimes I got to s- fly as one of the navigators. Um, and uh, that was quite cool, as well as I got uh, maybe about an hour or two of, uh, of uh, stick time. Um, which was which was a blast because at the time I, I had my private pilot's license, so um, my primary f- airplane in terms of being a pilot was a Piper Tomahawk at what about fifteen hundred pounds, and then um, the other airplane I got to fly was the B fifty two for an hour or two, which you know was at what a max gross weight of four hundred eighty eight thousand pounds. So it was an interesting contrast. How does the B fifty two handle? Uh, it's a terrible flying airplane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It really is a pig, and um, um, one of the most impressive pieces of airmanship that I've ever seen is a good um, pilot um, doing aero refueling in a B-52, because aero refueling is essential to its mission as a strategic bomber, but um, the B-52 is a very difficult airplane to um, fly well in that um, you know close formation. 
And and when you see good pilots do it, and we had some excellent pilots out at Edwards, um, it was really a work of art. Um, you know, the airplane, the B-52 is nice and still behind the tanker, but then you look at the pilot and they're putting in like, you know, one or two inputs per second, um, you know, and they're, they're, they're going back, forth, back, forth, up, down, blah, blah, blah. meanwhile, the airplane's dead still. Um, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a very, uh, slow responding airplane. Um, uh, I, I, I had a lot of trouble flying it. I ended up kind of PIOing it because, um, you know, I was used to general aviation airplanes, which are fairly crisp and responsive, and that's not how you would describe the B-52. Um, I have gotten to fly the B-1 simulator, um, and, uh, you know, that's that's like, you know, that, of course, is, is a major advance over the B-52 in terms of flight controls. Um, it's got a, a full authority di- uh, fly-by-wire system, analog, but but fly-by-wire. And I mean, that's a beautiful, crisp handling airplane, but the, the Buff is, uh, is a tough plane to fly. That actually brings up an interesting link that EAA has to Edwards. Um, I think it was maybe 10, 15 years ago, Aluminum Overcast actually went out to Edwards uh, to do some, I think it was, a, it was actually a contract we did with Test Pilot School to get some, uh, some students through it, uh, just for some, you know, dissimilar diversity of experience kind of stuff, kind of stuff we were talking about before. And I remember my boss, Sean, um, he was, uh, uh, you know, flying and I think he was flying right seat and he was bringing, bringing students in through the left seat. And, uh, he had a, I think he had a B1 pilot, uh, sit down in the left seat and fly the uh, overcast, you know, of course, which is mechanically, basically just mechanical advantage cables and pulleys. And uh, when he got out of the seat, he's like, wow, this is a lot of airplane. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's exactly what they want to do there, which is introduce people to um, um, new and unusual airplanes, be they gliders or T-6 Texans or, um, you know, uh, uh, serv- airplanes from another service. Um, that that range of experience is so valuable to understand uh, what aircraft are really about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One quick question, just because I'm jumping back just a hair, but you talked about the uh, the long breadth of experience that you've had, and, and also the fact that you um, were on the Osprey program. Um, what was that like? Uh, you know, the Osprey had had a a famously protracted period of development to it, you know, for many, many reasons. Um, what was that like to finally see it go operational, um, you know, about 15 years ago? Well, that was a real thrill because, um, you know, I had, uh, I had worked really hard on that. And um, the, the V-22 was a incredible, pro, incredible aircraft with incredible potential, but a very, very troubled program. Um, I think that that the, both the contractor and the government dramatically underestimated uh, the technical risk involved, and um, it uh, you know we tested the very early prototypes, and um, they were very interesting in the sense that they proved that it would work, but they were they were overweight. They had major problems with reliability and uh, maintainability. They, they, they never would have been a practical weapon system. So essentially, the airplane was completely redesigned. Um, we also had um, a tragic crash in flight test uh, on July 20th, 1980. Uh, I'm sorry, July 20th, 1992. Um, I had actually just left the program. Um, I was on vacation before going back to grad school. And uh, my aircraft, uh, which was the fourth V-22 prototype, crashed and uh, seven guys were killed. Um, including you know, people who I had worked extremely closely with. 
So um, um, it was a it was a tough program. Um, the it also was in a period um, where the defense spending was being dramatically cut back uh, because it was in the aftermath of the Cold War, and so the V twenty two was was constantly under the gun. In fact, the um, uh, Dick Cheney, who was Secretary of Defense, wanted to kill it, and it was kept alive because it was popular in Congress. And so you had all this the politics swirling around it. And then you had the fact that it was a dramatic leap in technology in every which way, and it had a, a boatload of problems. And uh, it, was, uh, it, was a very, it was a very difficult program. But we did a lot of cool stuff, and eventually it turned into a very effective weapon system. And then, you know, now you see it being used both in combat, and it's also a very important aircraft when we do humanitarian work because it can go in to places where, let's say, the runways are, are unavailable. And, and, you know, bring supplies and, and carry out people. So uh, it's, it's, all, it's all worth it in the end. You know, I, I know we talk about movies uh, like The Right Stuff or something like that. You know, you hear about uh, the risk that, that the test pilots are, are, you know, they're putting it out, out uh, all on the line uh, every day. But, you know, the, your loss of the crew and the Osprey really kind of puts it out there. That, does that ever register with the flight test engineers that they're also um, – you know, kind of, kind of putting some risk out there to go on these flights. Well, in fact, um, two of the people on the uh, Osprey that crashed were flight test engineers, uh, Bob Rayburn and, and Jerry Mann. So, um, you know, yes, I mean, first, not only do um, can engineers be in fact on the aircraft, but you know, the the, the dangers, the, the hazards of flight test are something that just dominates the field, and it's something we think about all the time. And, um, it's, it's, it can be pretty, it it makes it a very high stress thing because it's not just a question of, oh my God, that my, my view graphs aren't right. And, um, my, my PowerPoints aren't right. And I'm going to embarrass myself in a presentation or, you know, whatever people in an office talk about, um, you know, the things that you do can have real consequences. In fact, right now, I'm in. I'm not working in flight tests right now. I work for one of the major aerospace contractors, and I'm I'm leading a team that's developing um, new digital flight control systems. And you know, we're we're really concerned. I mean, we're not we're not building um, we're not building apps that go on smartphones. We're building on things where people's lives are in our hands, and um, we treat that very very seriously. And uh, I work for a great company. I mean, my management treats that super seriously, too. I mean, you know, when someone says, hey, we got a problem or we, uh, you know, uh, people pay very strong attention because uh, the consequences are so high. Yeah, you know, it, it, there's a, a, a talk that my first uh, boss uh, gave me that I, when I went to work for uh, medical helicopters back in Pittsburgh, uh, John uh, Clayton, uh, my first boss, mentioned that. Uh, I remember first day on the job, he said, uh, we save lives here. Never forget that. And it registered with, I think, everybody, even down to the folks who scrubbed the floors in the hangar, that uh, they were part of the equation that helped save lives. And, and it, it, it's amazing that many years later, I, I still remember that uh, uh, that talk he gave us. I, I have some, I've had some very young engineers on my team. I mean, in other words, they're, they're fresh out of college. And... Um, one of the things that I often said to them, they may have gotten a little bit sick of it, but I think it was worth it, is, guys, this is not an academic exercise, and we're not just building circuitry here. Um, people's lives are in our hands. If if we screw up, we can kill people. And, and so if there's anything 
that you don't like. In other words, we don't we if we find an anomaly or something like that, we never just say, "Oh yeah, that was a one-off," and you know, we'll we'll try it again. I mean, every everything has to be um, documented and analyzed and made sure that we're comfortable with it before we move on. Um, we we treat this stuff really seriously, whether or not we're actually in the aircraft. Absolutely. So, Ken, um, in addition to being the, uh, in addition to all of your work, obviously as a flight test engineer and and uh, and the work you're continuing to doing, excuse me, continuing to do in in the world of aerospace engineering, uh, you've also um, uh, you're also a writer. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that? Yeah, I, I I really I enjoy writing, and um, obviously um, my passion is uh, aviation and aerospace. Um, I've written three books. The first book was about the B-52. It was one of the uh, Squadron Signal in Action series. And then I wrote a book about the KC-135, which is uh, in the Squadron Signal Walkaround series. Um, but th- you know, those are the, the standard kind of soft cover 80 or 88 page books. Um, they've been well regarded. My last book, though, was a much more ambitious book. It's called The Supersonic Bone. It's published by Pen and Sword in, in England, and it's distributed in the United States by Casimate Publishers. It's a uh, 375 or so page, very comprehensive history of the B-1 bomber. It starts off in uh, the mid-1950s when the Air Force hadn't yet gone operational with the B-52, but they already were thinking about what was going to replace it. And then it follows that very circuitous path, which led first to the B-70, which was, of course, tested but canceled, and then to the B-1A, which was tested and then canceled, and then its revival in the form of the B-1B and the testing and production of the B-1B. And then, then, you know, of course, it was designed as a nuclear bomber primarily, and the Cold War ended and it lost its mission and how it was recast as a long-range conventional strike platform. And that was done just in time for um, the wars of the uh, it, – its first combat use was in uh, 1998. And then after 9-11, it spent the next 20 years in combat. So um, doing doing things and using weapons that had were inconceivable when it was designed. And so um, it's a very comprehensive book. It's based on a lot of primary documents, um, pictures that have never been published before, about 45 interviews. I did over 100 hours of interviews um, with people from all aspects of the program, air crew, engineers, maintainers, um, public affairs people. And um, it... uh, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's just a big, glossy, uh, pretty cool book about the B-1. Um, th- there have been some good books written about it before, but some of them are like 25 years old. So this is pretty up to date. Um, I'm quite proud of it, and I hope that uh, people enjoy it. I've gotten nice feedback so far. One of the things you mentioned, which uh, really kind of got me excited about it, is that uh, you said uh, model builders are really going to want to uh, look at it because it's something that just like I mean, I mean really same with those in action but in walk around books but uh, you said that uh, model builders will get a lot of good uh, use out of it yeah I mean there are a lot of detailed pictures in there it's not primarily a book for modelers but there's an awful lot of detailed pictures in there um, and a lot of pictures of things like uh, markings on aircraft oh that's awesome yeah so you know if you want to if you want to uh figure out which decals and things to use on the aircraft um there's a there's some really nice pictures of nose art in there for example 
Yeah, we had one here uh, a few years ago that was actually dedicated to the Doolittle Raiders. They uh, dedicated, I think, two B or B ones. Uh, one was named Ruptured Duck, and one uh, I think uh, just kind of honored the Doolittle Raider heritage. And it was really neat. I think we had Ruptured Duck here, so uh, it was kind of fun because we had the the son of the um, it was the son of the top turret gunner from the Ruptured Duck who was actually here. Uh, so his dad's airplane was kind of honored with this specific B-1. I can't remember. Is there squadron heritage between mm-hmm. the B-1 squadron and—, yeah. and okay. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So. Yes. The, the, the squadrons at Ellsworth Air Force Base, which are the 34th and 37th Bomb Squadrons, um, have traced some heritage to the Doolittle Raiders. I don't think that technically those were the squadrons that did the raid, but they contributed— um, um, personnel to the the raid force, so they have kind of adopted it as their own. That's awesome, and and uh, and I just wanted to to just mention Chris the uh, you yeah, know that we did yeah have the uh, B one here a couple of years ago, and that it kind of came back by popular demand. It is a absolute crowd favorite here at Oshkosh, especially for the night air show. You know, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, yeah, take you know, off all four, four afterburners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's 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 religious. Yeah, um, it's a really cool airplane. Um, I I, uh, I I really fell in love with it writing the uh, the book. But it's a it's a it's an interesting story, and it's not, and the book is not a, a fanboy book in the sense that um, you know the the airplane has been very controversial in its life. Um, it was canceled. Um, it's had a lot of problems, and I don't, I don't. I'm not there to promote or defend the airplane. I just try to describe um, what were the issues and how people thought about it and why people made the decisions that they made. Um, and and I'm, I'm trying to help people understand, not just go, oh, this is such a cool airplane. Because to, to we airplane fans, it's a cool airplane. But to the taxpayers and to the people who uh, um, you know, are elected um, to high positions in our government, it's just a means to an end, um, which is um, you know, national defense. And so um, I try to show how they made the decisions that they made and what were the reasons that they did that. And Ken, for people that want to buy the book, where can they get it? Um, you can get it from, if you live in uh, the United Kingdom, you can get it from Pen and Sword, um, it, which is the publisher. If you, in the United States, you can either order it direct from the um, uh, publisher, which is Casimate Publishers, um, uh, C-A-S... E-M-A-T-E publishers. Um, you also can get it from all the usual um, online uh, retail channels. Oh, fantastic. Uh, the, the, the supersonic bone. And, and if you wonder what a bone is, well, B-1-B-O-N-E, bone. The, the <laughs> official name of the airplane is the Lancer. It's the B-1B Lancer. Nobody calls it the Lancer. They call it the Bone. It's just like the B-52. Nobody calls a B-52 a Stratofortress. It's called a Buff. Yeah, yep. exactly. exactly. <laughs> same, same thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, Ken, it's been another great hangar flying session here uh, on the Green Dot with uh, hanging out with you. Um, you've, you've had some very, very unique experiences in uh, aviation and, uh, and obviously continue to tri- contribute to the community as an author. Uh, as a GA pilot, as a community member, and uh, it's uh, it's been great sitting down and talking to you. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to seeing you. Uh, so for some reason or another, I think we'll all end up in uh, in Wisconsin in late July. 
Yep, we are. Uh, we're planning a, a gathering here at our place. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll probably just crash the party and drop on in. That sounds good, <laughs> as usual. Thanks again. Absolutely, Ken. Well, uh, for everybody listening, uh, thanks again for uh, for tuning in and um, keep the feedback coming. Of course, on whatever your favorite podcast platform is, the uh, the reviews definitely keep us going uh, and uh, continue to boost the visibility of the podcast. As we are now in our Chris, what is this? Our fifth. Sixth year? I think I we was just entered sh- our sixth year. I was shocked to hear that the other yeah. day. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So we would have done an anniversary episode, but frankly, uh, we forgot ourselves. We, did, we didn't realize <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so thank you everybody for the continued support over uh, over the years with the uh, with the podcast, and we'll we'll keep it going here. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll um, we'll be here another in another two weeks uh, with another great episode when you're cleared to land here on the green dot.